Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have I think qualifies as an old friend. I've known Josh Ireland for a while now through multiple iterations of his journey. And so I'm excited to sit down and and get it on tape. But Josh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's exciting for us to, or for me to kind of sit down and do this. I know we've known each other for a while, so we, I think we'll have plenty to talk about. So let's start with the personal stuff because your story is not the typical fact pattern that you see for somebody who's in your current role working at, you know, a large wealth management firm. Maybe tell us a little bit more about the background and the journey and and the story of how you got here. Yeah. Um, I think the short version would be that it it just is not generally a straight path. Uh, I studied engineering. So I finished school and went and worked for a nuclear power plant. I was a nuclear engineer out of college. And within about four or five days, I realized I didn't want to be a nuclear engineer for the rest of my life. So I remember on day one, I sat down and, you know, kind of setting up your desk and putting things in order. And one of the older engineers walks over and says, congratulations, you're here and you made it. You did a great job and you interned for us. And I remember when I started on my first day, I was at that exact desk. And here I am 30 years later, three desks over. And, and in 30 years, you'll be three desks over. And so you're kind of set. Um, you've chosen a great career and and you don't have to worry about um, looking for jobs or resumes anymore. And that wasn't extremely appealing to me. <laughs> 20, 22-year-old, kind of knowing that my life was already mapped out for me. And And maybe even before that, I mean, does your family come from 
an engineering background or a finance background? No. Um, so I came from, I was a military kid. So my mom was a single mother. She worked two jobs. We didn't have a lot, but we had a lot of love. She took really good care of me, uh, my sister, and told us early on we could do whatever we wanted to do. So being in a military family, she was in the Navy. We got, I got to move around a lot, and that was great. I loved it. I got to see a lot of places, lived in Italy, lived in Hawaii, Maryland, Virginia, D.C., and so that shaped a lot of my worldview. And so that allowed me, I think, to see a lot of things a lot of kids didn't get to see. Um, but no, I was the first, I was the first college graduate in my family. And a lot of that was driven by mom saying, hey, don't settle, go out and, and do what you want to do. And so many of my career choices have been based on me trying to figure out what it is that I do want to do. And I love your perspective because, you know, other military folks can frame that up as, hey, it was really challenging because I never stayed in one place long enough to make friends. And I think that's very justifiable, right? But a lot of it is how you frame that experience. And with your perspective, that's a powerful one. I remember, it's interesting when you talk about the locations because I went to a military high school and these guys would come back. They usually went to one of the academies and they'd come back and they would talk. And you'd ask them, like, what's it like? They would say, whatever you do, Go to the Navy or the Air Force because the military bases are much better location-wise. <laughs> the, the Army, you'll get stuck in like Fort Drum in upstate New York or you know Fort Bragg in North Carolina, which I don't want to you know smear those locations. But I mean, when you compare it to like Jacksonville or Pearl Harbor, you know the Navy's got yeah. some pretty good options. Absolutely, yeah. I, I've always been Nashville's the furthest I've ever lived from a beach, and it, it can be tough from time to time. But I remember it was great going to high school. I was in Chesapeake, Virginia, and we were about 15 minutes from the beach. So um, what that meant was that we could skip third period and lunch and go to the beach and hang out for a little bit and get back in time for fourth period and, and soccer practice or football practice and, and not skip a beat. So I've always, I've, I've loved, I'm a beach bum beach vacations. And, and that is, other than real estate prices, that might be the biggest drawback to Nashville. <laughs> yeah, we could probably think of a few others, but it's a good place to be. And so what was that experience like being a first-generation college student? I think it was, it was interesting in that it was hard because I didn't have a path. I didn't have an older relative who I could say, okay, this is how things were supposed to be. I didn't have that context for being in college and then figuring out how to become an adult through that process. So I was horrible as a freshman, just time management, money management. Just, I felt a little overwhelmed. Also being in Atlanta, I was away from family. So I didn't have any friends, any family that were already there. So I kind of had to figure it out on my own. Now, with that said, I had had a lifetime of learning how to figure it out on my own because we would move every year. And so it wasn't as shocking as it could have been because it was just another situation in which I was dropped in and, and told I had to figure it out. But it, it took a little bit of time to adjust to learning to be on class, learning that I can't just hang out all night. I can't do all the things that I want to do because ultimately... 
I'm here because I have to learn. I'm trying to make my way towards a career and towards the next step. And so you have to make sacrifices and, and, and learn discipline to make that happen. And I, I do a, a podcast for my alma mater, small liberal arts school, where I interview student athlete alums. And oftentimes what I hear from first generation college students is the academics and, and the hard skills were easy because they were hard workers, they're motivated, they understand that level of achievement, but the, they oftentimes struggle with the soft skills, networking, how to leverage affinity groups and alumni connections to take that next step, summer internships, and then eventually transition to the professional career. They don't know how to send a cold email. They don't know how to ask for an introduction or referral. Was that your experience as well? Absolutely. I think there's an idea that you can do it on your own. And especially after years of being in professional industries, and and, I mean, you know this as well as anybody, the people who are successful or have become successful are rarely there because they picked themselves up by their bootstraps and did it all without help from anybody else. And so that was something that I had to learn. And that was hard because you have to swallow your pride a little bit. I would love to be able to go and say, you know what, I'm just going to outwork everybody and I'm going to be smarter than everybody. And because of that, I will be the most successful. And there's a stark reality that that just isn't necessarily the case all the time. And so learning how to, just like you said, learning how to network, learning how to communicate with people, how to build relationships, those are all things that one, I had to learn that they were important. And two, I had to learn how to do. And so along those lines, how did you end up within nuclear engineering? Was that something that you always had a passion for? But, and, and I guess I'm kind of backing into this because I'll, I, I think maybe if you had that opportunity to talk to a bunch of nuclear engineers who had been doing the gig for 10, 20 years, maybe you would have done something differently. But, but, but you tell me, what did that journey look like for you when you were in school? Oh, it was completely accidental. So I actually came to Georgia Tech. I entered as a biology major. And I've always loved science. I am a, a nerd at heart. Numbers are my love language. So I had an affinity for engineering, but I was an out-of-state kid and paying my own way through school. And I found that there was a program that would supplement part of my tuition if I joined some of these esoteric majors. And one of them was in nuclear engineering. So I realized when I found this program, I realized I could switch to nuclear engineering. I could do all of my kind of basic freshman, sophomore classes and then switch to something, whatever I really wanted to do later on down the road. Um, I made the switch to nuclear engineering and then I accidentally graduated. So I got out of school and I was set on this path that I kind of stumbled into. And that was just kind of where I ended up. So it's obviously a lot of work, right? Nuclear engineering as, as a major, you put a ton of energy and time into it. You get to the desk, you meet this guy, you see yourself in 30 years and you say, no, thanks. How hard was it from an ego standpoint to kind of swallow your pride and realize I got to pivot here? I think it wasn't too bad because I was I was early 20s. And, and I mean, you probably recall in your early 20s, it's pretty easy to fool yourself and just 
to form whatever decisions, to shape whatever decisions you're making as this is what's best for me. This is why I'm, I'm so smart to make this decision. And so um, some of it might have been ego driven in that I left an old college roommate and he was a programmer. And so he and I used to, he was in the startup world and the startup thing and a Facebook movie had just come out. And so we had watched it 50 times and thought we could do the Facebook thing and we could be Mark Zuckerberg. And that was awesome. And so we kicked these ideas back and forth about startups. And this is, this is something that we need. And this is what the world needs. And he came back from vacation after one of the Chinese New Year's and said, hey, I think one of those ideas might be something legitimate. We might have some investors. So you want to give it a shot. And it was at the point where I was kind of thinking about my future and thinking about alternatives to nuclear engineering. And so we put together a business plan and pitched some investors out in Shanghai and they paid for us to move out there and they seeded our business and we were off and running and doing our startup thing. So back to your question, I mean, a lot of it was pride driven probably and me thinking that I was smart and very capable and could do something awesome. And, and so I'm going to go out there and, and take over the world. So what was the idea? We had developed a platform that gamified shopping. So it was an e-commerce platform and it would attach to a website like Amazon and provide reviews and it would provide incentives for shopping and incentives for looking at different products and through all of your interactions on whatever e-commerce website you were on, you would get rewards and you can get tokens and tickets and all kinds of little things that just incentivize you to be on the platform more and shopping more. And what was that journey like to be an entrepreneur startup, especially in you know China at that time? It was exciting. So there was two of us out in Shanghai. I learned very bad Mandarin Chinese. We ate ramen noodles, just like entrepreneurs here. Um, lived out of a small studio apartment downtown. And it was great. We grew the company to about 20 people. Um, we became profitable and ended up joint venturing with one of the largest websites in China. We thought we had made it and we were well on our way. Subsequently, that company, which happened to be government owned, shut down our wing of development and opened up another one internally that did the exact same thing that we were doing, effectively closing us out of the business. Ouch. That's a bummer. How did you take that given, you know, the success that you experienced? <laughs> it was tough. I, and I think anybody would have, we took it probably how most people would. There was some commiseration accompanying some long nights out with adult beverages. And then we kind of said, okay, well, here we are. What's next? We were fortunate enough through the journey to have met some really great people and that kind of goes back to what you mentioned earlier and just building relationships and, and getting help from people along the way. There was an American who was a partner at one of the larger VC firms out of Beijing. He left to start his own hedge fund. And I told him, I love finance. I just, it, it's extremely interesting to me. It's energizing to me. I'd love to learn more about what you do in the financial realm. And he was kind enough to bring me on and, and kind of teach me what he knew, understood about valuing companies. And so then I had my foray into in the financial world. And what time frame was this? 
So this was probably around 2010. So after the Great Recession. It was, yes. So I graduated in 08 when it was in the middle of the recession and it was very difficult to find jobs. So you had two pivots within two years, basically, from nuclear engineering to entrepreneur to hedge fund guy. And what was the experience like at the hedge fund in China at that time? It was interesting. I mean, now the Chinese markets are much more developed. So analyzing and evaluating the companies there is a little bit different. When I was there, it was still a little bit of the Wild West. So for us being in China, it was fairly easy. We'd find companies and our job was essentially to figure out how they were lying. And so we did a lot of financial statement analysis and, and cash flow modeling. But sometimes it would be as much as looking at a company and listening to their call. And they say they have 37 factories and their biggest factory is right outside of Shanghai. Well, I'd hop in a car and drive to where their factory was supposed to be and see that there was nothing there. It's wild, man. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. And it was interesting talking to some of the entrepreneurs and it's just, it's a fascinating place. And, and thinking about the history of China is really interesting and, and just the future. I mean, they have so much manpower. The people there are brilliant and they have some interesting problems to solve, I think, culturally and politically, um, not unlike anywhere else, but it was just a really fun place to be at that time with a lot going on. And uh, eventually your next stop was Nashville, is that, is that right? Do I have the timeline correct? It was, yes. So How, How'd that come about? About three years into Shanghai, at this point, my wife and I, I married my college sweetheart. She was brave enough to move out to China seven days after our wedding. She got on a plane and, and flew out, and we were in China together for two years. About year three, we decided it was time to come back. There was some regulatory scrutiny with foreign-owned investment firms, essentially the government saying we don't want foreigners running financial firms in our country. And so we came back to Nashville. Her dad was the entrepreneurship chair at MTSU at the time. So we came to visit, stayed a little bit longer, and then nine years later, our stay has continued. <laughs> Here we are. And so you joined an investment bank in town that a lot of people in, in our, um, we're, I'm in my, I'm 39. I don't know how old you are, but a lot of people in my vintage, my peer group did, did stints there, right? Put time in there. How'd you find yourself there? And, and what was it like? Like you said before, it was, it was connections. So I met a gentleman who was also at MTSU and he was working in their business school and he knew the head of research at Avondale. And so we connected and I went and spoke to their team there and they were looking for somebody to kind of fill in an analyst role. And I threw my hat in the ring and it was great, but that was all because of connections much to my chagrin. I mean, I, I would love to say that I was just, I was so impressive and had a great resume was a phenomenal interviewer, but none of the, none of the good things that have happened to me professionally have, have been my own doing. It is a hundred percent, people who have offered to connect me with others. It is people who've been, who've gone out of the way to help me, offered advice, offered support, offered 
connections and resources and relationships and really anything that happens to me professionally that is good is is ultimately the result of other people's benevolence. I'm not going to disagree with you. You're you're not giving yourself nearly enough credit, but that's just your style and that's your personality. So we're going to put that on the shelf and move on. But as a teaching moment, I do agree with you. I think we are the product of the people that we surround ourselves with oftentimes and people do open the door, but you've got to step through it. So I'm curious, you know, Bavendale for folks listening who aren't familiar was a middle market investment bank, did sell side research, you know, M&A maybe a little bit of wealth management, trading. Given your experience there and your your experience in the financial system, really your whole career, what were the forces in play that that made that model just become not feasible? And, and where do you think we're headed when it comes to those types of, of firms and financial services companies? Well, that's a trillion dollar question as far as the future of financial companies, but it's, it's an important one. Avondale was great. And I think Avondale struggled adapting and adapting in the right way. And so I think that they also were coming in a time where Nashville was changing a lot. And so the changes in the financial industry and the changes in Nashville, I think, compounded and and they had possibly grown to this inverse Goldilocks size where they were a little bit too big to be nimble but not quite big enough to throw their weight around in the financial realm with the large institutions. And so that, I think that made it tough for them to kind of navigate a lot of those changes. And I think maybe they were just kind of the first, um, the canary in the coal mine in an industry in finance that's, that's seeing wholesale changes now. And so it's really interesting if you watch kind of the landscape of finance, I think, we're seeing some big changes and some long overdue changes. And I think that ultimately, and we can talk a little bit about some of the driving forces of those changes, but ultimately, I think at the end, um, it's something that's going to be great for clients because you have smaller firms like Excelsior who are able to provide great service to clients that they might not have been able to access 20 years ago from a smaller local firm. And in a lot of cases, some of these small firms are just running circles around these big monolithic giants who aren't able to adapt to change quick enough, who aren't able to really hear the voice of the clients and aren't able to really serve clients at the level where they need to be served. Thank you for that plug. I'll buy you lunch. Uh, <laughs> when I'm back in town, thank you for that. But but that is kind of, I don't want to, we were kind of running your resume and, but we're getting a little bit off tangent, but it's interesting. What do you think? Because I agree with you. I think this concept of this term gets thrown around a lot, but democratization of access to financial services, the proliferation of access to alternatives, the dilution of the accredited investor thresholds. It, it seems like private equity in a in a large tent sense has been the purview of the bulge bracket banks. And those moats are starting to get crossed over by some smaller players. And it seems like the future of financial services in many ways becoming a tech play. I mean, do you think the JP Morgans and the Goldmans of the world are going to be as relevant in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? As relevant, possibly not. 
Um, I wish I, I wish I could tell you what was going to happen in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But I think you're exactly right. As there is a discernible trend in an industry that used to be run by several banks, four or five banks who would sit in their ivory towers and kind of command how markets were going to be run and what client service was going to look like and what products different investors and and pension funds and endowments were going to receive. And there's been a large decentralization of that industry. And so some of that is driven by regulatory um, changes. And some of that is just driven by the free market and technology. And I think it's a great thing because as you see technology come into play, you have small companies that are able to provide value. They're able to outsource things that they don't need to necessarily be spending a lot of time on their hands doing. And really what that allows is for scale. And so you're able to see very talented individuals in the financial industry step out from under the umbrella of these large banks and really serve the clients. And so I think that decentralization leads to more competition. As you have more entrants and more participants, you have a higher need to define a value proposition. So 20 years ago, Brian Adams might not have been able to leave a large group and start his own firm, whereas now you can do that and you can find good people to help you. You can find good service providers to bolster you and work on accounting, compliance, IT. And so you are able to do what you're great at. You're able to build an infrastructure around you and you're able to really dig into the client needs. And that's something that wasn't really available 20 years ago. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When people talk about, not to age myself, but I've been doing this 11 years, the the software technology that I can leverage for investor relations, reporting, asset management, accounting, bookkeeping, and the cost of those software applications has gone down so dramatically. It's allowed us to access such a larger universe of investors and service them in a quality manner. It just wasn't possible five years ago or not feasible uh, from a cost perspective. Mm-hmm. And so really has, in my opinion, just revolutionized the way that I do my business and allowed me to, to, to do exactly your point, to scale in an efficient manner without you know diluting the experience for the investor. And I'm sure you're seeing the same thing on your side. Yeah. And it's it's great for the firms who are willing to innovate. So I think in the near term, the future is really bright for groups who are embracing that innovation and change. And I think the market recognizes that. And so it'll be really interesting to see the industry continue to morph and become less centralized. I think long-term, that means that the future is really bright for the clients who we're supposed to be serving. It's almost heartbreaking to think, and you know this, seeing the internals of a financial industry that's made a lot of money preying on clients with excess fees, gatekeepers, um, layered fees, and just these adverse incentives that are still lingering in a lot of these larger groups. And a lot of the clients have no clue. I had coffee this morning with somebody. Won't say who. Won't say what firm. Great guy. And they're doing stuff with these old school broker dealer uh, syndicates and and channels. And this isn't even the end user asset management fee, but just 
to put the person in the deal is seven points day one. Wow. It's insane, man. I mean, and you know, how many clients are really like they're disclosing it, I'm sure, but I mean, are they actually talking about it? You know, mm-hmm. best interest threshold versus a fiduciary threshold. And what does that mean? And I talk about this all the time with, you know, young people, especially after I've had a tequila or two. It's like my dad and his buddies or people of his ilk, you know, were a friction cost for people to buy stocks. And my dad's a lawyer, but you know what I mean? Like people of his age and his generation. And that all went away, right? That friction cost went to zero. And that now costs nothing to buy a stock. And in many ways, I think the future of alternatives is going to be the same. I, on some level, am a friction cost because it's an inefficient market. But at some point, that efficiency will come and those prices will come down, which I think is a good thing for the end user and the investor. Yeah, it has to be. And it's it's kind of crazy to think about the friction costs that still continue to linger um, with these clients. And like you said, a big part of it is just people don't know the right questions to ask. People don't know, they don't know what they don't know. And I mean, we work with very sophisticated investors with really high net worth and they're almost trusting to a fault and that they're not asking the right questions. And I'm sure you do the same where you'll meet with people and and you're happy to serve them or even just talking to people who aren't necessarily working with you. But there's been this wall between what happens within the financial industry and the clients. And that wall has been clouded with marketing, um, with relationships. And ultimately what's happening is there's all these excess fees that are charged. There's these incentives that are misaligned with what's in the best interest of the client. And it's just wild to think that you have very sophisticated people, clients who are trusting others with their money. And in a lot of cases, they don't even know how much they're paying their advisors. And we'll get to what you actually do for a living at some point, but this is too good of a conversation because what's cool about what's happening now, though, is because of podcasts, because of webinars, because of blogs, because of social media, because of these networks, if you have the time, not necessarily the money, it doesn't cost anything, but if you put the time in, you can really educate yourself and access this stuff, quote unquote, for free, whereas before... It was behind a paywall, or you had to be on the right distribution list, or you had to pay for the right research papers, and you had to belong to the right club in New York to know how this all worked. But you can actually start you know, disentangling this if you just put a little bit of effort in, which I think is so cool and forces people like me to lead with content and education to build those relationships, which is totally the right way, I think, to build those investor connections over time. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And I think a big driving component of that is just the market's beginning to demand it. We're living in a day and age where people love to do the research on their own. So we don't use Comcast anymore. We we record cutters in my home and we use Netflix and we use Amazon Prime. And that's how we watch TV. And what we did is we looked at how much we were paying Comcast We were looking at alternatives. We were looking at what was offered by these platforms and decided ultimately, I think we might get more value going with the less traditional route. And I think that there's a lot of that thinking going on in the financial world, finally, where people are saying, what am I getting for what I'm paying? I guess the first question is, what am I paying? What am I getting for that? 
is there someplace else where I can get that better? And just like you said, now they're able to find these other places because of the technology world we live in. So you can find a podcast, you can Google, hey, who does commercial real estate in Nashville? Hey, how do I find good alternative managers who are dealing in energy? And you can find a list. I mean, you still have to use your brain and and kind of sift through some of it, but it is much more readily available than it was back when everything was run by Goldman and Morgan's. So let's transition that into what do you do? (laughs) Maybe, you know, now that we've established that you're a good person and that (laughs) you like care about people, maybe give folks a little bit, we jumped a little bit around. We, we missed a gap in your professional career, which is probably good to cover, but talk a little bit about, you know, what you all do and, and, and your role within the covenant. Yeah. So I serve as COO at Woodmont Investment Council. We are an investment advisory firm here in Nashville. Uh, we recently crossed the billion dollar threshold. And I think that puts us in the top group for size in um, at, for independent firms in in the city, so one of the big, one of the larger independent firms. We serve high net worth individuals. We serve nonprofits, um, endowments, and we work to be good stewards of of the money for those who trust us with it. Define an RIA for people. Yeah, so we manage money. Essentially, we will invest money for you. I think, and you alluded to this earlier not to belabor this, but I think it's extremely important. As an independent RIA, we hold ourselves to what is called a fiduciary standard. And this is, it's very nuanced, but it's extremely important. What that means is we are held from a regulatory standpoint, we're responsible to do what is in the best interest of our clients at all times. Anything we do, any investment we make for Brian Adams, when we are investing your R your IRA, if we decide to buy Apple for you, we are doing it because we think that is the number one thing that we can do to help you accomplish your financial goals. Seems like that should be the standard, but it is not. And it has not been for since the beginning of the industry. Most firms that you would think about as far as money management firms, essentially firms that are broker dealers, the ones that you have that you'd see commercials for on TV, when they are managing your money, by and large, they are held to a suitability standard. So what that means is when they are making investment decisions for Brian Adams, they are buying what is good enough. So it has to be suitable for you, not necessarily the best thing. The biggest differentiator there in suitability versus best interest is that if I'm not under the fiduciary standard, I can take fees and commissions for putting you into an investment product. And I would say this is maybe the number one thing that people we work with have never heard of and are just floored when they think about the implications of a lot of these large investment management firms are making investment recommendations to clients and people based on an incentive that they receive for putting clients into certain investment products. So if I'm with large banking firm A and I get 20 to 20% commission every time I put a client into a certain fund, well, I'm probably going to try to put Brian Adams into that fund, whether it's best for him or not. And so 
I think we're seeing a shift towards the fiduciary standard. And I think you'll see, I've seen some commercials for it, for some firms advertising, but it is by and large the single thing that I would say to anybody when you're looking at somebody to invest your money, to manage your money, to be a good steward. I mean, the saying holds true, follow the money. So one, understand what you're paying in fees. It is mind boggling how many people I can go out and ask, what are you paying your advisor in fees? And they'll say, I don't know. Two, understand how your advisor is getting paid. How are they, what are they incentivized to do? A lot of advisors will be paid mostly based on fees as just a, a percentage of the assets that they manage. But you should know if your advisor gets some kind of commission or payment for putting you into certain kinds of products. Are they getting a commission for putting you into an annuity? Are they getting a commission for putting you into certain life insurance products? Because a lot of them are. And that doesn't mean you need to leave your advisor if he or she is getting those commissions, but you should know about it as a client. 100%. If you're listening to this and you, you haven't asked your financial advisor these questions, pick up the phone and call them. And if they don't answer you how you want them to be answered or they, they, they say, hey, well, let's talk later, rethink your relationships with these people. Because, I mean, I had a family office the other day. We were doing a networking deal. They just had a liquidity event. Younger person, next gen asked me for some recommendations of people that he should talk to for wealth management. He's on the East coast. And I said, well, you know, what, what, what flavor of ice cream do you want? Do you want them to be a BD, an RIA, a hybrid BDRA? Do you want them to be a trust company? He didn't know. And this is a very sophisticated family. He didn't even know what those terms meant. So we kind of had to break it down, explain to him what they meant, what the implications were. And anecdotally, I won't say names, but I'm sure, you know, like I'm on the distribution list for a lot of these products and offerings, right? One holding company that we all know is a household name. They own two different groups internally. They're pitching the same fund to me. One is pitching it as a fiduciary. The other is pitching it as a BD. The BD gets a point and a half placement fee and 50 BIPs asset manage, uh, uh, advisory fee. The other one takes no fees and just the management fee level exposure for me. Same firm. Owns both companies pitching me the same exact product offering. I'm like, this is insane. This is totally insane. And unless you live in this space, it's very confusing. Can you imagine if if that kind of model was prevalent in any other industry? It's wild. It's hard. But you all do it the right way, which is part of the reason why I have you on the, on, on the show was because I think independent RIAs, there's a reason the AUM is rising. There's a reason FAs are leaving the BD model and, and going towards you. What do you think the future of the industry holds? Which I know is an unfair question, but what are you seeing trend-wise? You know, there's a lot of articles every day about the average age of a financial advisor is 65 or they're losing X amount every day. I mean, you're getting older, but you're not old yet. What are you seeing and what are you <laughs> feeling and thinking right now about your industry? My kids think I'm old always, <laughs> um, by a long shot. I think the, I think it's 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 a good time for the clients. Finally, it's amazing to look around, and this is through. I mean, obviously, you and I are both entrepreneurs at heart. Um, we wouldn't be doing the things that we do now if we if that wasn't true. And so, I think wearing my entrepreneur hat, you see, it's it's finally time for some innovation. 
and there's a lot of vestiges left over of the olden days. I think you can look at, I mean, if you look at wealth management, look at a lot of the firms and, and you will see kind of older white guys, right? And, and you will see guys that have been doing it for a long time who are a little bit older. And that doesn't imply anything in and of itself. But to me, it, it looks like a firm that is not innovating, a firm that is not, I mean, you know, one of the biggest things when we go to these conferences with wealth management firms and, and hear what other groups are struggling with, they're talking about succession planning. That is probably one of the biggest topics. And, and the reason is because you have all of these firms who have not thought about what's next. They have not been thinking about the future. Now, some of that's because they're spending all of their hours thinking about how to serve their clients now, which is a great thing. But the future of the industry is, is going to change. And I think that's because you have a lot of firms that have not been innovating. And those who have, I think, are going to accelerate quickly. And some of that, some of that acceleration is going to be driven by technology. Some of that is going to be driven by finding young, talented people who are excited about coming to work and the environment you've created. And some of that innovation is going to be driven by clients who say, we demand more. I think a lot of clients are saying, hey, I can order a car to come pick me up in 15 minutes and drive me where I want. And that has far less consequence than what happens with my money management. Why isn't my money management experience as good as it is with Uber or Lyft? And, and I know you know this, hiring good people is hard. And these young, talented individuals aren't going to stay because they've been with you for a long time and they're not going to come join you because of your reputation. They want to know what your vision is for the future. They want to know how much they'll be able to move the needle. And so even just hiring good talent and retaining good talent, that I think firms are gonna struggle and, and have been struggling with figuring that out because it's a little different than it was 10, 20 years ago. So for the benefit of people who are only listening audio and, and don't know you, you're not an old white guy. <laughs> and the experience that my wife had recently of, of going through an advisor RFP process, was and you put it really well and she said the same thing i don't want to go into the room every quarter and have a bunch of 65 year old white guys across the table telling me what i should be doing and i think the firms that understand that it's not diversity for diversity's sake it is because you need to reflect the community that you serve and our community is now a very diverse one both in age race and background it's it's become a business priority if you want to stay relevant, in my opinion, over the next five to 10 years. Absolutely. And I, I think you put it extremely well. It's not we're, we don't need diversity just because we want to check boxes and, and that's what people are saying. I think there are a lot of reasons why it's important. But even just from a nuts and bolts standpoint, if you increase the talent pool that you're drawing from, you're bound to have more talent. That, that just, it, it's a mathematical fact. And so if you're drawing from a pool of very diverse candidates, people from very diverse backgrounds, you're going to have, in addition to the pool you're already drawing from, you're, you're just going to have more qualified candidates that you're going to be able to pull in. So a great segue 
I know you have some limitations on what you can or can't say, but you have an exciting venture in the works. I won't comment because there's there's still some moving pieces there, but to the extent that you can, talk a little bit about what some future endeavors you're working on might be. Yeah, so I think the reason I joined Woodmont was because I saw a team of leaders who were looking at the future. I mean, it is, it is an entrepreneurial environment here. There's 10 of us, 11 of us in the firm, and, and we're managing assets that usually 25 and 30-man teams are managing. And, and part of that's because we're very startup-like. And so a big part of that is just entrepreneurial vision of what is needed and um, where's the puck going. And one of the things we've looked at is what is the future of finance going to be? And we think that, and where is where is it underserved right now? And, and a short, quick answer to that is it's underserved in diverse communities. I think we have the benefit of living in Nashville, and this is just it, the city's booming. And it has a huge, very bright future, but also it has an extremely creative past and colorful past. Three HBCUs right down the street played a pivotal role in civil rights and just working towards enfranchising groups that have not historically been enfranchised. And so um, one of the things we're looking at working on is what would a diverse investment advisory firm look like. And so we've started kicking the tires and, and we've found some phenomenal people in this city who have a similar mission. And so um, I think later this year, we'll be announcing the launch of something that could be filling a, a really important gap, not only in the city, but in the country. But also it's something that it's going to be exciting. It's going to represent Nashville very well, and it's going to be done right. Yeah, I, I, it's incredible. It's akin to a punctuated equilibrium. These movements, you know, grind away at these things for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And then all of a sudden, there's a huge amount of change that takes place. Like 50 years of change takes place in one year. Mm -hmm. And it's awesome to see it take place in the financial services industry because it's been so, so underwhelming and so underserving to certain communities that it's awesome to see it in our own backyard. So kudos to you for, you know, being at the forefront of it. And to the extent that we can support you as a community, you know, know that we're behind you and it'll be a lot of work, but I think it'll be a pretty incredible journey. Yeah, it'll be great. And we'll, we'll come knock on your door and ask you for money, uh, just like everybody else. But it is, it's a great time to be in Nashville. It really is. I mean, we can, we can sit and lament the prices of houses and tax situations and, and, the woo girls downtown, but um. <laughs> so said by somebody who, you know, I can see the Ryman from your office. <laughs> for people, they're going to interrupt the, uh, the for people who don't have the benefit of the video. Uh, I mean, Josh, like literally works in the middle of bachelor, bachelorette alley central so on a Friday afternoon, no less. It'd be yes, wild. It is <laughs> raving the elements, but it's, it's a great city, isn't it? It's incredible. I mean, people, my wife is a local. I'm from New York. And like a lot of locals, she complains about the traffic and pricing. And it. But I have the benefit of traveling a lot through America and a lot of secondary markets, right? I don't just go to New York. I go to Kansas City. I go to Wichita, et cetera. And I tell people all the time, listen, there are negatives for sure. And I don't want to diminish them. And 
pretty much every other city in America would die to have our problems. I mean, they would, they would kill to have these issues of growth and you need to be careful of, of managing it for sure, but don't, don't extinguish it because uh, next thing you know, you'll be left behind. You don't want that. So we're, we're bumping up against the hour mark. You need to get home and see your, your family and your kids. But if people are interested in learning about you, Woodmont, you know, potentially this new venture you all are working on, what is the best way for them to, to get in touch with you? You can find me at, I don't do social media, so probably just an email. We'll be providing contact information in the show notes. And if you want introduction, reach out to me, but. um, Absolutely. Yeah. I got the website. Yeah. My first response is, is to reach out to Brian. (laughs) Brian (laughs) Make a thousand introductions for you and just put your name out there. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Josh, thanks so much. Good ones. (laughs) <laughs> yeah okay well thank you so much for joining us man it's been incredible i've known you for a long time and so happy you landed at a great spot and that you've you got some really cool things in the cooker so good for you yeah this was fun thanks so much thanks for i mean all you've done in just the financial industry and that you've been around it's crazy to think you're i'm, I'm also in my upper 30s but i feel like you've been around for a lot longer than 11 years. <laughs> yeah, I think it was interesting. I got, I'm on this distribution list of this old investment banker guy and he sends Friday notes around and they interviewed a bunch of hedge fund managers and they were like keys to success. And there were 10 in a row of these quotes from these big, you know, George Soros and Drunken Miller, all these guys. And they all just said survival. <laughs> and I feel like sometimes <laughs> I've just been, you know, around long enough that I just know people and have the benefit of having this great connectivity. And and I heard a rumor, I'm a huge hockey fan. I heard a rumor TSU is going to get a hockey program. Yes. Which come knocking on my door with with a jersey, I will I will stroke a check because I'm all about that. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. So we need to and then hopefully lacrosse will be next on the list. Don't even get me started, man. <laughs> I uh my yeah, we I got lots of ideas, but Well, thanks for doing it, Josh. This is great and um, look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, thanks, BA. I'll talk to you later. All right, man. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Marketers and business owners, you've been pining after a certain someone. Your job's on the line. You're desperate for them to like you back. Here's a word of advice from me. Talking is hot. Just you and them, finally alone, like us two right now. Maybe under the duvet, headphones on, -on one-on-one. Podcast advertising is proven to be one of the best ways to catch their attention. So surprise them while they're tuned in, while the moment's right. Say a line or two that really gets them going. Next time, if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love, experiment with something new, just focus on your voice. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcast shows with Acast. Head to go.acast.com closer to get started.